Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. And you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1163. Please stand if you're able. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you to our musicians and the choir for uh, leading us this morning before God's throne. If you keep Eric Lindahl in your prayers, he came down sick with the flu this morning, and so uh, uh, Drew stepped in at the last minute to guide us before God's throne. So we're very thankful for him, and keep Eric in your prayers. It's not much fun. But uh, if you can find your Bibles, um, go ahead and grab those again. Make your way to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Again, that's on page 1163. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, we'll also have it up on the overhead at various times. We've noted throughout our time in the book of Philippians that the church has a mission. That's been one of the drumbeats that we've seen Paul hammering over and over again, we have been set apart by the gospel and for the gospel. And when Paul uses the word gospel here and elsewhere, he's talking about the news of what God has done to establish his kingdom, to deal with our sin, to rescue us through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. So God rescues sinners. People who do not deserve to be rescued. God rescues sinners, rebels against his kingdom. Through faith in Christ, he forgives us, he cleanses us, he adopts us into his own family. So we become children of God and brothers and sisters of one another. And as his rescued people, he gives us a mission. He gives us a task to advance the gospel of Jesus to make disciples of all nations by bearing witness to the message of Christ through faithful and clear proclamation and through loving and merciful service. So that is our mission. That's what the church is on earth for, to advance the gospel of Jesus. But whenever there's a mission, you can pretty much guarantee that we will find Opposition. Paul tells us as much back in chapter 1, 27 through 28, when he calls us to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not being frightened in anything by those who oppose you. So there will be opposition to our mission. The reality is that as the people of God, Living out our days in a fallen world, we live in wartime. We live in wartime. We have a mission, but it, that mission is opposed, both from within and from without. So we, have, we face war 
in our relationships within the community. We saw that a few weeks ago in the first part of chapter 4. We face war in our own hearts where the residue of our sinful flesh and the evil desires that we have continue to fight against the Spirit of God in us. So we have war in our own hearts. And of course, we face war uh, in the world around us. The God that we serve seems to this world outdated and irrelevant at best and bigoted and even monstrous at worst. So the task of testifying to his goodness, to his rightful rule over this world, to the message of salvation and new life in Christ, that is a daunting task when we consider the risks involved. You know, losing our reputation, losing friends and family, maybe losing our job. In some parts of the world, losing our lives. We live in wartime, and it's serious business. So the question is, do we live with a wartime mentality? Do we live with a wartime mentality? When the United States entered into World Wars I and II, citizens on the home front were asked to make major sacrifices. So basic goods like coffee and sugar and gasoline and clothing, meat, canned foods, all sorts of things were rationed since resources and funds were being directed to the war front. Uh, people were asked to plant victory gardens so that they could offset the effect of the food supply that the war was having. They were asked to invest in war bonds to support the effort. So every day was lived with an awareness that the country was at war and that everyone had a role to play. Now, contrast that with the nation's casual indifference regarding the recent war in Iraq. Now, I'm not interested right now in whether you think that war was appropriate or inappropriate. I want you to see the contrast. What was asked of the nation in terms of tangible support? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, now certainly many military families gave much. And some of them gave their own lives. But there was no public expectation that the rest of the country alter their lifestyle or share in that sacrifice. There was no wartime mentality. So the average American's personal investment in that conflict was as safe as turning on the television and as shallow as changing the channel to watch Wheel of Fortune instead. No wartime mentality. I think we find a sad parallel when we consider the wartime mentality of the church today across North America. Now, I'm not talking about wartime in terms of being violent and so on. That's a metaphor here. But when we consider how the wartime mentality of the church across North America today, there is little sense of urgency in our mission and so there's little sacrifice given to the cause. The thought of significantly altering one's lifestyle for the sake of the gospel of Jesus is nearly unheard of. 
So often our investment is as safe as a Sunday drive to church and as shallow as going home and spending most of our day thinking about football. We don't live like we're at war. We don't live like we're at war. Just to be clear, I'm just as guilty of this as the next person. This has probably been the most personally convicting sermon I've had to prepare from this book as I think about my own life. So if we're not living with a wartime mentality, then what are we thinking about? What is it that consumes our imaginations and shapes our actions day in and day out if it's not the gospel of Jesus? And what impact does that have on our faithfulness to the mission? So we need to revitalize a wartime mentality or to frame it from another angle. We need to cultivate a gospel-shaped perspective. A gospel-shaped perspective. A way of thinking and seeing the world that focuses our minds and hearts to live faithfully as God's people on mission. And that's what Paul gives us this morning in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. A gospel-shaped perspective. So let's pray together as we look at this passage. Lord, you know our hearts. And we belong to you. Open our eyes to see your word, to see you more clearly, to hear your voice this morning in the scriptures, and change our hearts to love and serve you. Remind us of your grace and your mercy. And may that move us to be faithful. We ask that you would speak as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our passage in the book of Philippians, uh, Paul has just finished appealing to two women, two co-laborers in the gospel, who were in conflict with each other over secondary matters. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 4. And this conflict threatened to distract them from the main thing, which was their mission. And so Paul appealed to them to agree or share a common perspective in the Lord Jesus. And to help them do that, and to help us do that, he then gave uh, several instructions. Uh, Told us to find our joyful satisfaction in Jesus, to rejoice in the Lord always. Told us to be known for our gentleness in conflict, not our edginess. And he told us to turn our anxiety into prayer, verses 4 through 7. So that's what we looked at a few weeks ago when we were last in Philippians. When we come to verse 8 this morning, that conflict back in 2 through 3 is still ringing in the background, but Paul begins to offer a more general set of instructions that apply not just to the conflict, but to all of life as God's people on mission in a fallen world. Paul tells us we need to learn how to think and what to do. How to think and what to do to be faithful to our mission. I want you to see the parallel between verses 8 and 9, between thinking and doing. So, and this is lost a little bit in the NIV, so we have the ESV up in front of you. Look at verse 8. So you have a list of several virtues. It's kind of listed down there, and then Paul says... Think about these things. Then verse 9, you have another list of things, and he says, practice these things. So, think and do. 
That's what Paul wants us to do this morning. Think and do. We need to know how to think and what to do as servants of Jesus on mission. But though we live in a wartime, look at his conclusion at the end of verse 9. What we can expect as we think properly and live faithfully. The God of peace will be with you. And that's an echo of what he said in verse 7, just a couple verses earlier. As we rejoice in Jesus and turn our anxiety into prayer, he says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we are at war, but we serve the God of peace. We serve the God of peace who is in sovereign control over this world and who will be faithful to utterly destroy sin and to establish the peace that Christ has already won through his shed blood on the cross. We serve the God of peace. As such, we don't fight the way the world fights, with violence and coercion and power. No, instead, we speak into the chaos and darkness of this world. We hold out the one thing that is powerful enough to take something dead and make it alive again. To take something stained and to completely purify it again. The one thing that can bring forgiveness to something that stands condemned. We hold out the gospel of Jesus. The message of Christ crucified and risen. That is our weapon. The proclamation of the good news. So how could we be faithful to that mission? How do we avoid being distracted or compromised while on the battlefield? Really milking the military metaphor this morning. Well, we need to learn how to think and what to do. And we're going to start with how to think in verse 8. How to think. Verse 8. Philipp excuse me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Eight different virtues that Paul wants us to think about and dwell on. Things that accord to those virtues. Whatever it is that occupies our hearts, our thinking and our imagination, that's what ultimately shapes how we live what we are excited about, what we give our lives to. And so Paul wants our hearts and our minds to be filled, to be filled with and focused on the things that come from the God of peace. So his word, the goodness of his creation, the fruit of his gospel, rather than filling our minds and hearts with the propaganda of the enemy, the ugliness of sin and the stain of this fallen world. So we need to fill our minds and focus them on that which comes from God. These eight virtues. And I want to look briefly at each of them that Paul lists here. And I want us to think about the alternative when we do so. So first, whatever is true, Paul wants our minds to be dwelling on what is true as opposed to, obviously, what is false. What happens in war with bad intelligence? Think about that. 
you get the wrong information, you get information that's false, that can have deadly results. You can you know, take you in the wrong direction. You put yourself, your soldiers, civilians at stake when you're operating on what is false instead of what is true. So we need to think about and dwell on and fill our minds with the truth. Whatever is true, and whatever is true is what comes from God. Whether it's something we read in the scriptures, the word of truth. Whether it's something that we see reflected in his good but broken creation. Or whether we see it in the restoration of that broken creation. The truth of the gospel that corrects the lie of this world. The fruit of the gospel. Whatever is true is what comes from God, and that's what needs to fill our minds and our hearts. And the same can be said of the rest of these virtues, that they come from God. So beyond what is true, Paul wants us to dwell on whatever is honorable or noble, what is dignified. So whatever takes seriously God's authority and design for creation, as opposed to whatever is dishonorable or crude, whatever doesn't reflect his rule and order, what makes light of it, and so on. So, whatever is honorable. Third, Paul wants us to think about whatever is just or right, that which accords to God's rule, as opposed to that which is unjust or wrong, that which throws off God's rule. And then he says, whatever is pure, so unstained, undefiled, morally upright, according to God's standards, as opposed to what is impure and stained, what falls short of God's standards. Fill your minds with these things, Paul is saying. Think about those things. Fifth, he says, whatever is lovely, so beautiful, pleasant, emanating from the beauty of creation and the beauty of the gospel, as opposed to the ugliness and blemish of this fallen world. The things that turn your stomach when you see them. Sixth, whatever is commendable or admirable. So things that you can speak highly of and celebrate. Fill your mind with those things, as opposed to what's disrespectable or of ill repute, what's shameful and unable to be mentioned in public. Don't fill your mind with that. And finally, Paul says... If anything is excellent or virtuous, if anything is worthy of praise, which are kind of catch-all summary statements, so anything that reflects the goodness of God, His truth, the truth of His word, the power of His gospel, these are the life-giving things that ought to occupy your attention and capture your imagination as the people of God on mission. So what does that mean? What does that look like, practically speaking, to think this way? What does this mean for a culture where we spend most of our thought and imagination on being entertained? You know, a culture where, to use Neil Postman's phrase, we are amusing ourselves to death. Now, it's striking that the average American spends 
4.5 hours a day watching television. You stack that all up together, that's 12 consecutive years of watching TV by the time you hit, you hit age 65. And that doesn't include internet or video games. So it's hard to live like we're at war when every spare moment and brain cell is spent tuning out of reality and into a mindless fantasy. Now, I'm not against entertainment or recreation. Neither is Paul. You know, to quote Don Carson, like everything, it has its place, but it's not God. There is, in fact, a lot to be commended about film and art and literature, much that is life-giving and stimulating, and we need to inter interact with it, engage it, and enjoy it. There is also much that is dirt and drivel, and our society has lost the ability to distinguish between the two. To quote uh, Carson again, the sad fact is that many people dwell on dirt without grasping that it is dirt. You know, the wise Christian will see plenty of dirt in the world, but will recognize it as dirt precisely because everything that is clean has captured his or her mind. So it's not about escaping from the stains of this world. It's about what are you choosing to dwell on and fill your mind with. So what's at stake in buying into the propaganda of the enemy, in letting our hearts and minds be filled with and focused on whatever is untrue, whatever is shameful, whatever is wrong or unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is ugly, whatever is objectionable, if there's anything vicious or blameworthy, the opposite of Paul's list. What's at stake in letting that fill our minds and focus our imaginations? Well, for starters, the constant message across all media, whether it's film or art or TV or radio or print or internet or whatever, the constant message is that life is all about you. This world, all this, this exists just for you. So it's your glory, your desires, that's the message we find everywhere we look, as opposed to God's mission, God's glory, God's desires. Think of the phrase, the American dream. Okay? There's a reason we call it a dream. A dream is something that captivates you, that, that captures your imagination and, and motivates you and fuels you and, and directs you know, your, your desires that promises you satisfaction and delight. And so it's this dream. And I'm consumed by it. You know, and it's all about me, the home, the car, the career, the family. It's all about me. That's the first thing that we have to guard against as we open our eyes and live in this fallen world. Moreover, the constant bombardment of images of violence and sex and sensuality across media, not to mention the celebration of immoral expressions of these things, has the subtle effect of desensitizing us to the evil that we're actually watching. It doesn't feel evil or that wrong anymore. It's not very shocking 
to see limbs blown off. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's normal now. You know, it's, it's not shocking to see an unmarried couple wake up in the same bed on TV. Sometimes we're forced to choose which bad guy to root for in a film because there's no good guys. It's just this bad guy versus that bad guy. Is there something wrong with that? It's interesting that we don't notice that anymore. As the church curmudgeon, whom I follow on Twitter, says, looking back... The movies were a whole lot more moral when it was a damnable sin to go see them. I think he's right. But beyond distracting or desensitizing us, the entertainment culture, and I think this is the deadliest part here, it has a more subtle and more insidious effect of trivializing our life and mission trivializing it. So it doesn't really matter. It's not that important. As Postman points out, it's hard to sustain a serious commentary on the evils of sexual trafficking when the talk show has to break in 30 seconds for a bikini-clad beer commercial. That completely trivializes what was just happening. I mean, sure, the world's bad, but it's not that bad. Not if you can just grab a bud. In, a sa- in the same way, it's hard to take seriously our commission as God's people when our mind is taken up more fully and more consistently with the plotline of Twilight or the recent antics of the Kardashians than with the story of Scripture, which is the real story of how the world is. And I'll be honest, this is the most personally convicting uh, aspect of wrestling with this passage for me, realizing how prone I am to treat entertainment as my functional savior. So, what is it that gets me through a long day? A long, frustrating, weary day. What is it that, that just helps me slug through it? Is it the presence of God's Spirit strengthening me and reminding me of who I am in Christ and all that He's done to rescue me and make me His own? Or is it the prospect of sitting down on the couch after the kids are in bed and watching Downton Abbey? What is it that really gets me through the day? Much conviction there. Now, contrast all of that with what happens when our minds and hearts are filled with and focused on the life-giving milk that comes from God's Word, His good creation, the transforming fruit of His gospel. What happens when we follow Paul's call to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ? What difference should that perspective make? Well, first it reminds us what our mission is all about. It reminds us the seriousness of what we've been called to. It brings us back to reality. So when I set my heart on God's Word, when that's the framework by which I engage culture and think about things, all of a sudden I remember that God really is holy. He really is king 
of His creation. The world really is fallen and rebellious. Men and women, friends and family, really are going to hell. Sin really is sinful. But grace really is sufficient. Jesus really is Lord and Savior. He really does rescue us and cleanse us. We really do have a mission and a calling. God really is worth our undying devotion and affection. He really is in control. And He really is making all things new. A gospel-shaped perspective reminds us what our mission is all about and who has the power to accomplish it. Not us, but God. Second, a gospel-shaped perspective gives us a framework to advance our mission with a posture of grace and love. So, think about advancing the gospel among your neighbor. If when I think of my neighbors, all I can see is the junk in their yard, all I can hear is the swear word that came out of their 10-year-old's mouth, all I can remember is how they forgot to return the tools they borrowed last fall, I'm not going to be very mindful of that part of my calling in life is to testify to them of the transforming gospel of God's grace. That's just not what I'm going to be thinking about. I'm going to take a posture of self-protection and distance. Don't play with those kids. Don't, don't, let, don't borrow, lend him anything. But if I'm constantly reminded that this person is made in God's image, that's true. That apart from faith in Christ, they're facing eternity in hell. That's serious. And that in Christ, they can find all that they need to deal with their sin and the brokenness of their lives. That's beautiful. Then it's a lot easier to reach out to them in vulnerability and love, isn't it? Think about advancing the gospel in your friendships or your marriage. Whether your friend or spouse is a believer or whether they're a non-believer, you know, they both need the same thing. They need more of Jesus and a deeper dependence on His grace. If when I think of my spouse, all I can see are the dirty socks on the floor or the dirty dishes in the sink, all I can hear is the constant nagging or criticism, all I can remember is the broken promise or the careless word, then I'm not going to be very mindful that my, part of my calling in life is to help them see and hold fast to the transforming gospel of God's grace. Again, that's not what I'm going to be thinking about. I'm going to take a posture of self-protection and self-centeredness, being more concerned about whether they're loving me than how I'm loving them. That's going to be my posture. 
But if my heart and my mind is filled with God's word about my spouse, if, it is, if my heart is filled with the privilege that I have of loving them, if I can see the goodness of this marriage covenant and I can focus on the fruit of God's grace at work in their lives, seeing the changes that are happening, and it's a whole lot easier to follow the model of Christ and to lay my life down in selfless sacrifice, regardless of what I get out of it. And we can apply that to any relationship, whether it's your boss, your brother or sister, your child, your friend. What's filling our hearts and our minds? Do we see them with gospel lenses, focusing on the goodness of God and the truth of his word. So we need to learn how to think. If we're going to be faithful to our mission, we need to learn how to think, how to dwell on what is true and good and beautiful in this world. We need a gospel-shaped perspective. And we think so that we can do, which brings us to verse 9, what to do. And here much more briefly. With a proper perspective in place, Paul now calls us to follow his example as a servant on mission for Christ. So verse 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put these into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So, We've got the perspective. Now, what are we supposed to do? Well, whatever you've received or been taught by Paul, whatever you've seen or heard from him, well, what are those things? We need only look earlier in the book of Philippians to see you know, where Paul has held out his life as an example. So think back to chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Paul held out his life as an example there where Paul rejoiced in the advancement of the gospel despite his own suffering and imprisonment. That's something we've learned from Paul. Where his singular goal was to make much of Christ, whether by life or by death. So you've seen that, you've heard that. Do that. Think of uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, where Paul considered his heritage and his hard work and everything else to be complete rubbish compared to the joyful satisfaction of knowing Christ and being counted righteous through faith in him. Remember chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, Paul's gospel-fueled passion and perseverance, where he forgets what's behind. He strains toward what is ahead passionately pursuing the prize of Jesus. That's something Paul's modeled for us. Or think of 3.17 through 4.1, where Paul told us to join in, join in imitating him and those like him, the kind of people who know that their citizenship is in heaven, not this world, and who therefore hope fully in the resurrection to come. Imitate those people. So, Paul shows us a picture of what it looks like to treasure Christ above all things and to willingly lay our lives down 
to make much of him, to advance his gospel. Are we willing to follow that example? Are we willing to follow that example? If we don't think clearly with a gospel-shaped perspective, the answer will be no. If we do not, if our minds and our hearts are not captivated by the gospel of God's grace, by how sinful we are and yet how amazing his love for us is, that he's rescued us, if we're not taken up by the incomparable satisfaction that we have in Jesus and passionate about all that he's called us to do, we will not willingly lay our lives down. We will chase some other dream instead. We have to know how to think in order to know what to do. And Paul summarizes it all for us back in chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude, your thinking, your mindset, your perspective should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's our ultimate model. Who did not consider his status as God as something to be exploited for selfish gain, but instead emptied himself, laid his life down in self-giving love. As we saw last week in John 13, he became obedient to the point of death on a cross, the lowest of lows. That's the extent to which Christ was willing to go to accomplish God's purposes. Do we follow his model? Do we see the world from those perspectives? If we're to be faithful to our mission as God's people in this wartime, while we await the Lord's return, if we are to hold out the hope of Christ and new life in him, the same hope that changes our lives and the same hope that we need every single day as we continue to be sinners, if we are to hold that hope out that men and women around New England and from every nation would, might come to know the joy and forgiveness of Christ, then we need a gospel-shaped perspective. We need to think properly and live sacrificially. That's Paul's call this morning. And when we do that, not only will we be bearing witness to the God of peace, we will know and enjoy his presence at the same time. While we fight this war, we'll be reminded that he is in sovereign control. That he is with us and he is for us. He's given us a firm foundation in his word and the peace of his presence. There is no longer a war between those who know Christ and God. We are now friends of God, children of God, and we know that peace. And we will be reminded that God will be faithful to utterly destroy sin and establish his peace, his wholeness, his shalom, and claim the victory that Christ has already won through his shed blood on the cross. We will know the presence of the God of peace. That's amazing. Well, it's this peace and this victory that we celebrate with the Lord's table. 